So our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 10. We are continuing our study in Acts 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 this summer. And this morning we come to verse 1 of chapter 10, and we'll read all the way through the very first half of verse 23. Now, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there because we'll be making reference through the sermon to this text. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab one, there's blue uh, Bibles that are in the chair racks in Acts 10. Uh, starts on page 1168, and you can find it there. Now, this reading, I hope you'll see in a minute, and as we continue to talk about, it will fit with the two passages that we read earlier, um, the text from Leviticus 11 and the text from Mark chapter 7. So, uh, let me, it's a bit of an extended passage, but let me invite you to stand, if you're able, uh, all the same, and I'm going to read this out loud. We will do this out of respect for the reading of God's Word, but if you're not able to stand, then Respect is ultimately a matter of the heart, and so we understand that as well. When I'm finished reading, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, As to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There is, um, there's, there's very little in this world that is more tragically sad than looking into the eyes of someone who believes themselves to be unworthy or unwanted, cast aside, despised, hated, 
maybe completely forgotten, considering themselves to be unclean and unworthy, made to feel that way perhaps by others. And you can think of numerous dramatic examples of this in human history, like those at the bottom of the Hindu caste system, the Dalit, literally the untouchables, the poorest of the poor, who according to cultural belief deserve their status because of bad deeds that they have done in a previous life. Or maybe you think of the designation given by the Nazi regime in the 1930s and early 1940s, the designation given to those with severe disabilities or to those that they considered to be grossly racially inferior. They, they called them the Lebensunwürdesleben, life unworthy of life. Or maybe you think of the unwanted mixed-race children during and after the Vietnam War who were fathered by American servicemen and born to Vietnamese mothers. They were called buidoi, which means less than dust. Or maybe, particularly if you were with us for the Calvary conversation this past week, you may think of Les Miserables, the novel that can be translated, the title that can be translated from the French as The Miserable Ones or The Poor Ones or can also be translated, perhaps most harshly, simply the wretched. Dalit, Lebensinvertes Leben, Buidoi, Les Miserables. To the average first century Jew, you could add another word to the list, and that would have been Gentile. Essentially, anyone not a Jew. The Gentiles were considered unclean, being in their presence, eating with them, having them in your home. They all contaminated you and disqualified you from being able to publicly worship. And it wasn't true of every Jew, but by and large, the culture at the time had this sense of, 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 of hatred and disdain for the Gentiles. In fact, I've heard many people said, many commentators pointed out that it was among rabbinic tradition at the time in many circles for someone who was a Jewish midwife to be cast out of the community if they helped a Gentile woman give birth. So, so much were they sinning by helping to bring another Gentile into the world. Which is what makes this vision that Peter receives in Acts chapter 10 so remarkable, so historically transformative, because it challenges the understanding of what God considers clean and what He considers to be unclean. And it marks the changing of the seasons in redemptive history in a very dramatic way. So this vision given by God to Peter, is at the heart of what's happening here, and that's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to, to talk about. We need to see the occasion of the vision. That's the when, the, the where, the to whom of the vision, right? What's going on here? And that's point number one, the occasion of the vision. We need to understand the content of the vision. That's the what of the vision. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to grasp, begin to grasp, the meaning of the vision. That's the why. So the occasion of the vision, the content of the vision, and the meaning of the vision. Now first, let's talk a little bit about the occasion of the vision, right? Review the context, that the, the setup for the vision that Peter receives later in the, in the passage. Because before we get to Peter, we're introduced to this guy named Cornelius. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on Cornelius today, and that's because we're going to come back to Cornelius next week. The story continues after verse 23. We'll talk more about him, but I don't want to skip him entirely. What are we... What do we learn about Cornelius? Well, we learn that he lived in Caesarea, which is a city about 30 miles south of where Peter was staying in Joppa. And Caesarea was the seat of government for the Roman authorities for the entire 
province of Judea. You might have thought that it was Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was the religious capital, certainly for the Jews. Caesarea was the Roman capital of the region. That's where they set up their their government, and that's where, where Cornelius was stationed, because Cornelius was a centurion, a, a rank that was a rank in the Roman army, similar to the rank of captain in the, what we might understand as our army. He had command of about a hundred men. That's what centurion means. If you, you know your Latin, centum means a hundred. And this man, interestingly, we learn in verse 2, this Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, it said. He belonged to a group of people who were referred to by the Jews as the God-fearers. These were Gentiles who worshipped God, or at least had become disillusioned with all the gods of the Roman pantheon. The, the ceremonial laws, at least not in their completion, but they knew about Yahweh. They prayed to Him, even as we see here. It said Cornelius prayed, and they gave, poor, gave to the poor in, in the name of of, of the Lord, and we see that Cornelius did that as well. So this guy was probably, at least relatively speaking, somewhat fairly regarded by the Jews of his time, at least as much as one could be as a Gentile. But see, he was still, still a Gentile, still couldn't offer sacrifices in the temple. His presence would have still been considered to be contaminating, and from a theological and a religious standpoint, he was still unclean. That's who he was. And before we get to the big vision that Peter receives, we see that this, this centurion Cornelius, he receives a vision too. He gets a, a vision. It isn't the vision, but it is a vision. And the angel comes to him and tells him that he needs to send messengers to this guy named Peter, Simon Peter, who's staying in Joppa. And Cornelius does exactly what he's told. That's Cornelius, at least for now. More next week. Now, meanwhile, back to Joppa, because the next day after Cornelius receives this vision. The next day, Peter is praying at the sixth hour around noontime. It's lunchtime, and he's on the roof, which in those days was not as weird as it might sound to us today. Because if you said to someone now, like, you know, hey, where's dad? Dad's on the roof praying. You'd be like, hmm, dad okay? Right? But in those days, it was fairly common. In that part of the world, in those days, most houses had a, had a flat roof that was accessible by a ladder, and it was a place where sometimes they would set up a canopy, set up a couple of chairs. It'd be a place where you, place where you and it's, uh, and it's in the sunlight, and that's where Peter was. He was hanging out there on the roof, praying, and he was waiting for lunch to be prepared. Must have been some, some servants in the house that were doing that for him. And he falls, it says, into a trance. So kind of like sleep, but almost like a semi-conscious kind of a state. And it's in this trance that the vision happens, the vision that we're talking about primarily, the vision that marks the turning point in in redemptive history, the, the vision, the vision that would radically and formally alter the path of Christianity from that point forward. So that's the, that's the occasion for the vision. That's, that's what kind of sets it up. You meet the characters at the beginning of chapter 10. You've got this Roman centurion in Caesarea. You've got the apostle Peter in Joppa. You both men somewhat having some kind of authority, different kinds of authority, but, uh, but Cornelius, of course, having military, civil authority. Peter, as an apostle, having religious authority within the church, but both men needing to learn something that was very important for them to learn. Both about to have their worlds rocked by the God that comes to them in, in this vision. So let's look at then. Let's look at, at this vision a little bit more closely, the content of the vision. Go back to verses 11, 12, and 13. Uh, this, is what happened in the, this is what happened in the vision. First, there was this sheet. Actually, it says something like a great sheet. 
right? So it's not exactly like a bed sheet or something like that, but we know it's a, you know, it's some sort of a, well, it's got to be a square or a rectangle because it says it was lowered by its four corners, basic geometry there. And, but it's not really the sheet itself that is the, the focus that's the big deal. It's what's on the sheet. And what's on the sheet is mind-blowing because it's saying that there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds on the sheet. Now, all of these animals being mixed together would have been a very big deal because it would have been mixing both clean and unclean animals together. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to read Leviticus 11 earlier because I wanted you to see, just get a taste, that the Lord in the law given to Moses had made a very sharp distinction between animals that were clean and animals that were unclean. And, and some people who know far more about food safety and nutrition than I do and hygiene through the, through the years and through history will have tried to argue and might argue about why it makes dietary sense to eat some foods that God declared clean and why it would have made sense to steer away from other foods that God declared unclean, whether it's from a, a, a sanitary standpoint or just simply from a health standpoint. And that might be true to varying degrees, I don't know. But at the very least, we do know that God divided up the animals that were clean and appropriate for the Old Testament believer in Yahweh to eat and those that were not appropriate for the Old Testament believer in Yahweh to eat. And whether it made sense to the people of Israel completely or not, it almost didn't matter because it was, it was ingrained to them as part of the Torah, part of the, part of the law. So it is shocking that they're all together on this sheet. And even more shocking is the voice of the Lord that says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So not only are they there together, but God is saying, dinner time, Peter, served to you on a big giant napkin, lowered to you from the sky. And so this certainly is a pretty clear command here. There's no uncertainty here. God is showing all of these animals together, and he's telling him to make dinner and eat from all of them. Have you ever been, been to one of those uh, uh, Brazilian steakhouses? Um, the, you know, the first time I went to, to one of those, I was in my early 20s, and I went uh, with some friends, and uh, my friend gave me some advice. He said, Tom, look, this is how it's going to go. They're going to give you a card that's green on one side and red on the other, and as long as the green is up, the waiters will just keep bringing you meat. All different kinds of meat. Meat, meat, more meat. Stay away from the vegetables. Stay away from the potatoes. You can eat those at home. They're just going to keep eating. They're just going to keep bringing you meat. And when the green side is up, it's, it means more meat. Turn red up, it means temporarily halt with the meat. And then you turn it back to green, it says, all right, continue with the meat. I don't know if that's how they still do it, but that's how they did it at the place that I went to. Now, in the ancient world, meat was not always that plentiful. Not every meal contains meat, especially for the average person. I guess Peter, he was a fisherman. He was probably used to fish on a fairly regular basis. But to be given this kind of variety and commanded to eat meat, it's like God has given him the green card and saying, turn it up, Peter, because the meat has never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That's his reaction. Now, the reaction could be coming from one of two possible places. Now, it could be that Peter thought this was a test. That's what some of the commentators think, and, 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 it, and that's a rather sympathetic reading of, of Peter here. In other words, Peter wasn't trying to be disobedient to God, but he thought God was, a, thought God was testing him, right? He knew the story of, of Daniel and Daniel's boys back in, uh, in the book of Daniel in ancient Babylon when they were taken into exile in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and he was enrolled, and they were enrolled into Nebuchadnezzar's elite university, and 
And the only thing was, though, all the food in the dining hall at Nebuchadnezzar's uh, university, well, it was unclean food. So Daniel resisted. Even though he was under orders from the king to, to eat, Daniel said he wouldn't do it. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 1. Now, he did it in a respectful way. He actually sought, a, uh, he sought an accommodation for a religious conscience. And he, he, he worked out a deal. He said, look, how about you give us 10 days on veggies just to kind of see how it goes and see how we do. Turns out they did great, and Daniel won them over. Maybe that's what Peter, maybe that's how Peter was kind of reading it, reading into this, uh, this in, in a similar kind of way, saying, God, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. All right, you're testing me. You're trying to see if you can get me to eat some of this stuff, whether I'm really good or not. I get it. No way. The answer is no. I know the test, and I'm passing no. That's the charitable reading of Peter's response. Now, the less charitable reading of Peter's response is that this is just being Peter, Peter being Peter again. Right? Correcting God when he thinks God's got it wrong. Right? Remember, this is part of Peter's history. This is, there is a pattern here. Remember the time in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is teaching his disciples about how he's going to have to suffer, about how he's going to die. And Peter takes Jesus aside and says, look, Jesus, right, th- this isn't going to happen to you. This shall never happen to you. Far be, it, far be it from you, Lord. He's basically saying to Jesus, look, I know it's been a stressful couple of days and stuff, but you're tired. Let's stop talking all the nonsense here. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Now, why does he say that to Jesus? Well, because he has his own conception of what the Savior is, of who the Messiah would be. And the Messiah, in his mind, was not going to be a guy who was going to suffer and was going to die. Right? He had his own conception of the Savior. Or, remember the time when Jesus tells Peter, just before Jesus is arrested, Jesus tells all the disciples before he's arrested, he tells them that that they're all going to scatter and they're going to run away when this happens. And Peter corrects Jesus again, and he says, essentially, said, you got it wrong, Jesus, not me. Not me. I'll never fall away. Now, why would he say something like that? Well, because he had his own conception about how strong and faithful he was. He had overestimated his own his own character. And then you come back to the, to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 10, and, 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 and remembering Peter being Peter, it's very plausible to see that maybe this is just Peter being Peter again. God comes to Peter and says, eat, eat all of it. And Peter is correcting God and saying, no, you got it all wrong, God. Thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, you know, for, for, for trying, and I'm, you know, I'm all, I'm okay with letting the Ethiopian into the kingdom, and I'm okay with Samaritans being called Christians and all, but this is going a bit too far. Now, why would he say something like this? Well, because Peter has his own conception of what the church should look like and what the rules should be. Right? This is Peter. Right? He's got his own conception of who the Messiah should be. He's got his own conception of, of, uh, of how the rescue should take place. He's got his own conception of how strong and faithful he is. He's got his own conception of what the church should should look like and what the rules should be. Now, it's a long-standing tradition for Christians and preachers to sort of poke fun at Peter and say, look at Peter, isn't he being stupid? But all of these reactions are totally things that we could see ourselves saying, right? Because we look at God and says, look, I really think you should work your plan this way. I mean, thanks for telling me how you think you should work it, but I've given it a lot of thought and I think you should do it my way. That's what Peter was doing with Jesus when he rebuked him about Jesus saying he was going to suffer and die. And we do the same thing. We also overestimate ourselves and say, God, look, I know you think you know me, really, but I'm, you know, I'm good. Thanks. 
I know you've given me rules and boundaries, but I mean, really, I'm strong enough for this, uh, this temptation. It, uh, it, won't, it won't really hurt me. I mean, I, after all, I can stop anytime I want to. After all, it's just, just one look, one drink, one hit. That's all. I'm good. Just this one time. Or we look at God, who God is bringing into the church, and, and we make judgment on that ourselves, and we say, ooh, I think this one's going to be a problem, Lord. I think you might have made a mistake bringing this one to faith in Jesus because, uh, oh, maybe it's a test. Maybe I should protect the rest of the sheep by driving this one away or at least making them feel really, really uncomfortable. We do the same things that Peter does. One way or the other, though, Peter clearly seems to have understood point number two. He clearly seems to have understood the content of the vision. He didn't like it, maybe, but he did understand the basic content. What he did not fully grasp yet is point number three, the meaning of the vision. Now let's go there. The response to Peter's protest, by no means, Lord, that's what he says, right? Rise, kill, and eat, that's what God told him to do. By no means, Lord. The response of the Lord is pretty direct, pretty clear. The Lord says, what God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, where God has spoken, don't you dare contradict. As like I say at the end of a, of a wedding ceremony, Right? By the authority given to me by the church of Jesus Christ, I now declare you to be husband and wife, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? What God has declared, don't you dare contradict. But we can't just brush away and gloss over the real difficulties that this would have posed for a faithful Jewish believer. God was overturning dietary laws that had been in effect for his followers for thousands of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and he's repealing them. What's he doing? Is he changing his mind? In in other words, I mean, you might be asking this too. Can God even do this? Is he like allowed to? Like he made it a law. Like is he allowed to do this? Well, think about this with me for a minute, because what we're talking about here is actually really important. That's a question that that actually strikes right at the heart of the character of, of who God is. And we need to understand that there are two different ways in which God legislated in the Old Testament. Right? Two types of, of, of laws that He gave. There were, on the one hand, laws that result, that flow from His character. These are the moral laws. These are the laws that are summarized in the, in the Ten Commandments. And these laws, they cannot be repealed. They cannot be changed. They can't even be tweaked because if you did that then it would it would contradict his his character 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 it's not that they're divorced from god's character but they're not intended primarily as a as a as a reflection of god's character some laws are laws that flow from god's historic plan now the outworking of god's historic plan through his providence of course is reflection of his character in the sense that it's his faithfulness through history But these are laws that God instituted that kind of said, no, these these are going to be how I'm going to work out my plan. These are the civil laws that were to govern the political Israel for a time in history. These are the ceremonial laws that that govern the systems of sacrifice and offerings and how to present them in worship to God. And the dietary laws of clean and unclean foods would have fallen under, under that category. In other words, they were signs that pointed to something else, and when that something else occurred, then the sign would be no longer necessary. Not because there was anything wrong or deficient with the sign, but when the purpose of the sign is fulfilled, then you have something better. You have the thing itself. See, the laws were put in place at that particular time in history because God was revealing His character and plan at that particular time, 
And the followers of the Lord needed to understand, specifically as it related to clean and unclean, this concept of separation and and holiness. The dietary laws were a part of that. They helped maintain a Jewish identity, helped them to see themselves and helped them to see the followers of God as unique from the people around them and the nations that surrounded them. But uncleanness was never something that resulted from the type of food you ate, right? That's the purpose of us reading Mark chapter 7. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples earlier. You aren't unclean because of what you eat, because sin comes from the inside. It comes from the heart. That, in the way Mark 7 puts it, that is what makes you unclean. And Mark adds this incidental comment in Mark chapter 7 as Jesus is saying this, that in this way Jesus declared all foods clean. And it's very interesting that you find that statement in Mark's gospel because, you know, who most scholars believe was the source of the material that Mark wrote down? The apostle Peter. That's right, Peter. So he ultimately got to understand what God was saying very well. And so that parenthetical comment is significant. Now, what Peter will discover and what we'll be seeing over the next few weeks as this story continues to play out is that it's not about the meat. Right? The vision that Peter gets is not primarily about the food or the animals, it's about people. That's the, that's the meaning of the vision. It's about, most immediately, it's about the Gentiles. And the church needs to learn progressively, sometimes painfully, slowly, that Christians should never be looked at, for someone to be a Christian should never be looked at as someone who is unclean, never be treated as if they are unclean when God has declared them to be clean. And so I think that it's fair to say Peter would have understood this personally. The reason why it became very, very clear to him ultimately was because Peter did have to learn this a difficult way. Remember, Peter had overestimated his his own view of his character. He told Jesus he would never fall away, even if everyone else did. But what did he end up doing? Just hours later, after Jesus said that to him, he denied having any association with Jesus at all whatsoever, and he did it not once, not twice, but he did it three times. And there is where we see the essence of sin. It's not, it's, it's not eating a pork chop or fried shrimp. It's declaring with your words and your actions that you want no association with the Lord of the universe. You don't want His authority over you. You don't want to do things His way. You want to do them your way. You want, you want to do life the way you want to do life, on your own, on your own terms, in your own strength, and for your own glory. That's what sin is. See, threes in the Bible are a, threes in the Bible are a really big deal. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus hung on the cross for three hours. And here in Acts chapter 10, it says in verse 16, God repeats this vision to Peter, not once, not twice, but three times. The message is crystal clear. The unclean are clean. And those whom God has declared to be clean, let no man say otherwise. In Les Miserables, one of the characters who most clearly represents the the miserable ones, the, the wretched, is this woman, Fantine. She's an unwed mom who had a child out of marriage, contrary to the social convention of the time, certainly, but most importantly, contrary to God's loving law and God's design. And after she loses her job, she descends further into 
immorality. She's also treated unjustly, extremely unjustly, by her co-workers, by her manager at, the, at work, by the other people in the town, by the police. It's complicated. She's, she's miserable. She's wretched. She's unclean. And there's plenty of sin to go around for everyone to, to bear. But there's this scene in the, in the film version of the story that we talked about on Wednesday at the Calvary Conversation. There's this scene. And Fantine is sick. She's been abused. She's arrested. She's near delirious with fear and with fever, and she's in the police station, and the police inspector, Inspector Javert, has just unjustly sentenced her to six months in prison for hitting a man on the street, a man who, by the way, it should be noted, was, was attacking her first. But despite all of Fontaine's pleas, the inspector refuses to entertain any thought of mercy at all, and so he orders the guards to take her to prison. She can hardly stand up. She'll, she'll probably be dead from, from fever with, with, within a day. And her daughter, away in another town, will likely be an orphan and suffer a similar fate at some point herself. And it's at that moment, that moment when she is being led by the guards, literally drugged by the guards, away to prison, that the mayor of the town steps in. An honorable man who is known as Monsieur Madeleine, and as he steps into the room, Fontaine, instead of seeing this man as her rescuer, <laughs> lunges at him, barely restrained by the guards, and she spits in his face. He's the clearest symbol of authority, and in her mind, the source of all the injustice that she has experienced. And the guards yank her back, and, and, they, and they start to drag her away again. And that's when the mayor says, wiping his face, he says, let her go. And the police chief, Javert, he's, he's, he's stunned. What? And the mayor explains what he understood of the woman's, the woman's situation. He exercises his right as the final judicial, judicial authority in the town, and he declares her innocent. In the eyes of the law, he declares her clean, and Javert protests. He says, but, but Mr. Mayor, she, she spat on you. She defiled you. In front of my men, she defiled you. And the mayor says, I forgive her. And Javert says, no, sir. As the mayor, you are the personification of order, of morality, of government, the personification of all of society. You do not have the right to forgive her. You don't have the authority to destroy justice. The mayor does have the authority, though, not to destroy justice, but to be the one who enacts it as he sees fit. He quotes the criminal code. In fact, he alone has the authority to order her release, and he does. And he's not destroying justice. In fact, he's taking the consequences of justice on himself. Yes, she had defiled him. She's probably sick with something like tuberculosis or something like that. I mean, she had literally defiled him. She had certainly chafed at his authority. But what does he do? He takes the injustice of that upon himself. Any embarrassment, any, any, anything, I will, I will take that and she will go free. He will suffer the indignity so that her indignity can be removed. So the mayor declares her innocent and then takes into his care this miserable woman, this wretched woman of low estate and of questionable character to make her be the clean that he declared her to be. And as the story plays out, this act on his part comes at significant cost to himself. Now we see this, of course, not not in an exact metaphor or a perfect analogy, but we see this, of course, in the life and in the person of Jesus. 
because He came to be our rescuer. That's why He stepped into the room of human history. And we were being sentenced not because we were being treated unjustly, but because we were being treated very justly for our sin. And that's when Jesus steps into the room. But do we welcome Him as our Savior? Did they welcome Him as their Savior? No, they spat on Him, literally. And they defiled Him, and they mocked Him, and they crucified Him as a criminal. And yet this Savior prayed for those who did it and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The Savior took the indignity upon Himself so that those who had caused that indignity might go free. For those who would put their faith and trust in Him, that they might be declared clean, even though unclean. Remember, this Cornelius guy, we'll see him next week. We haven't forgotten about him. Cornelius is the, the object lesson of Peter's vision. He's the one unclean who is being declared clean. But that's not where it's not where it's left. It's not just as a declaration that God makes. This Cornelius, he's not just saying to Peter, this Cornelius guy, I'm declaring him clean. Peter actually, like the mayor, invites the unclean into his home. Unheard of, scandalous, a Gentile welcoming into his home, extending hospitality to, to someone who is not an ethnic Jew. And that's because Peter has a message to tell Cornelius, a message about this Savior who suffered this indignity so the clean could be made out of the unclean. That's how the cleanliness happens. There is a cost to us. There is a cost to it, but there is a cost to it that has been paid. That's the gospel. That's what Cornelius will hear, and that's the essence and the core and the meaning of this vision. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the mercy and the grace that You have shown to us because You suffered on our behalf, that You took the you took the indignity that you did not deserve and you did it so that we might be declared clean. Oh God, we thank you for being the judicial authority and exercising that authority on our behalf. Not only ignoring justice, but taking the consequences of it so that we might be able to be free. Change us, Lord, and help us to be proclaimers of this gospel to those around us, particularly those who see themselves as unworthy, who the world has cast off. Let us take this gospel to them and do it with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.